Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We're in the last days. The last days started when Jesus was resurrected. And we're still in the last days until he comes again. That whole time period between his resurrection and his second coming is in Scripture called the last days, the end times, the last times. So we're in them. I don't want to talk about the last days this morning because I'm like Mark Twain who said, It's not the things I can't understand about the Bible that bother me. It's the things that I do understand about it that bother me. And when you look at the last days, that's a real thing. There's a lot of things that I don't understand. There's a lot of interest and speculation, right? If you've been around for any length of time, I know Jesus drew me to himself in the 1970s, mid-70s, and there was a lot of emphasis on end times, the book of Revelation, a lot of books out there, late great planet Earth, Etc. Then in the 80s, it continued on. 88 reasons why the rapture would happen in 1988. And then in 1989, there was 89 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1989. Um, you might recall recently, in recent years, the blood moons. Um, there, there, there's something inside of us that wants to know the future. Would you agree with that? that? That's why there's fortune tellers all around still. Even though if they do operate, they operate from demonic power. And they don't really know the future, but they're getting your money by getting you to think that they do. That's why, honestly, there's been an increased interest in prophetic ministry. Because people want to know what's, what's ahead for my life. What's the future hold? And that's... Although I 100% believe in the prophetic ministry, 100%, it's not primarily to tell the future. It's primarily to call to Jesus and call close to him and to um, shift our heart posture towards him. I remember as a young believer hearing some of the teaching on the book of Revelation, which was mind-boggling to me. As a young believer, if you've read it much, it's probably still mind-boggling to you, and it still is to me. But I remember Revelation chapter 9, there's this scene where up out of the abyss come locusts, but the locusts look like horses that are dressed for battle. They have gold crowns on their head, they have an iron breastplate, and they have tails like scorpions that sting. And so I remember one Bible teacher, end-time specialist, saying that he believed that that was Apache attack helicopters. I had a flashback of being a child looking up at the clouds and going, that looks like a T-Rex eating a camel. It's not the things I don't understand about the book of Revelation that trouble me. It's the things that I do understand that trouble me, that I want to take to heart this morning. And so, 
The title of my message is Asking the Right Question About the Last Days. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to start. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, the book opens with Jesus talking to his disciples. He has been resurrected, but he has not yet ascended. He's still in the 40 days, and he's giving them instruction at the beginning of Acts. And I just want to read two verses and make some observations here. Verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, he said to them, the resurrected Christ. Uh, Let's go back to verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because this is what we've been waiting for, and our expectation as Jewish people is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to restore the kingdom, he's going to kick the Romans out, and we're going to all rule and reign, and everything's going to be happy, we're going to have the land back. Is this the time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, this is remarkable to me for a couple of reasons. One is, Jesus is resurrected. And he's saying to them, only the Father knows this. This is his lane. This is his thing. It's not for you to know the times and epochs. We go, and a lot of um, false predictions of the second coming of Christ have been predicated on the language in Mark and Matthew that says you won't know the day or the hour. So then we go, oh, okay, well, we'll know the week and the month for sure. <laughs> no, no, that's really true. That, that happened in that book. And then there's lots of good reasons why we can speculate. So 88 reasons why the rapture is happening in 1988. One of his reasons is the nation of Israel was brought back together supernaturally by God in 1948, and a generation is 40 years, so 1988. Hello? Except it didn't happen. It's not for you to know the times and the epochs. This this phrase is really interesting, and it shows how broad it is. It uses both Greek words. I'm not trying to be teachy here, but it's, it's just important. It uses both Greek words for time, chronos and kairos. You may have heard those words. It's not for you to know the chronos or the kairos, Jesus said. Translated in most Bibles as times or seasons or epochs. That's, that's a big period of time. It's not for you. So here's, here's the point that Jesus is making. You're asking the wrong question. Yes, we're in the last times. Yes, I'm raised from the dead. Yes, I'm about to ascend, but you're fixated on the wrong question. Is this the time of the end in Israel and Hamas and all this happening in Israel? That's really the wrong question. That's outside of our lane. I mean, I personally don't see that being the fulfillment of Scripture where all nations are gathered against Israel, but some people do. And I've been around this long enough to know that there tends to be a lot of overreaction and a lot of books sold. Just saying, was that, did that sound snarky? 
I didn't mean it to sound snarky, but it's really true. Because we are fascinated. We want to know what's going to happen next. What's going to happen? And Jesus redirects his disciples. It's not for you to know. That's not your lane. That's the Father's lane only. He knows that. Like we should have demonstrated over the history of the church of all the times Jesus was predicted to come back the second time. It's been multitudes of times if you read the history of it. Multitudes of times. That's not our lane. But verse 7 and verse 8 in the Greek text are one sentence, and there's a reason why they are. Because they're connected together. Look at this. Let me read them together. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. This is the Father's lane. It's not yours. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, this is your lane. You will be my witnesses, filled with my spirit in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So the question that we should ask is not when will these things happen or what exactly the different symbolism means. Because it's debatable. Like if you've, this last year I did a fairly long-term study of the book of Revelation, just verse by verse, really tediously like I do. And I still came out with, okay, I think I know two more things. Um, But there's so much that is, for me, still very foggy. But here's the thing. The big things are pretty clear. The big things are, we're in a war. And the war since Jesus rose from the dead is who is going to have and possess the earth and its inhabitants. And it's a battle against the God of this world who is Satan and the King of Kings, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all caught in the sandwich in the middle. And there's things that we need to do. And Jesus has commissioned us to do certain things and to take our part. It's really not about exciting our mind and our emotions about, oh, this is the thing and this is the thing. Like, it's not that. That's not our lane. Our lane is, here's what I want you to do. Don't worry about the times and the seasons and the epochs. That's really the Father's. Here's what you need to do. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit upon my people. And you're going to be filled with power and clothed with power from on high. And that power is going to give you ability to do what you could never do in your own strength. Because it's my power upon you. And as that, you're going to go forth and be my witnesses. So I'm giving you specific tasks to take forth in the power of my spirit. And that's what you need to concentrate and focus on. So I've got three biblical answers to the question... What should we do to prepare for that day? That's really the main question. What should we do to prepare for the second coming? It's not when is it. It's what do we do now to prepare? Number one is verse eight. Live filled with the Holy Spirit and be doing what Jesus has called us to do to advance his kingdom. Live filled with the Holy Spirit and be doing what Jesus has called us to do to advance his kingdom. We can study Bible prophecy. I've got this many books on Bible prophecy in my library. If you want to borrow them, you can, as long as you give them back. I had the young adults over one time on the 4th of July. I said, y'all want to borrow any of my books? Just go ahead and borrow them. I think 14 went out and I got one back. That's been three years ago, y'all. It's all right. I just bought another one.
I feel like being in the charismatic Pentecostal movement that we don't value or seek after or pursue enough or diligently enough what this gift, this promise from the Father that he's given us is all about and we don't actually live and walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It's not a throwdown. Yeah, you know, I, I look at myself in the mirror every day and go, what, what are you doing? But, but there's something that is so powerful about being clothed with power from on high that the early disciples, when they came into town, what did they say in the book of Acts? Here come those who have turned the world upside down. Now they're coming here also. There's something that happens. There's a power that is from heaven that changes things and that gives direct and powerful and convincing witness of who Jesus is. And we need that. I can speak in tongues. I do all the time. I can operate in spiritual gifts. I do. But the reality and the fullness of what he promised, of the promise of the Father, my question to myself is, if this is the last days... Am I living and walking in that fullness? That's the question I have to ask myself and we have to ask and answer. Because in our little circle, it's kind of easy to do that. But, it, but is that a real thing? That's the first. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Stay in your own lane. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and be doing what Jesus has called us to do. This is why, if I can ride this little horse for a minute, y'all just bear with me, but, but this is in my crawl. Like, this is why spectator Christianity is an insult to Jesus. It's an insult to Jesus. Because he said, I put my spirit upon all flesh. And I'm sending you forth to be my witness. There's something for each of us that he has empowered us by the ability from heaven to do that nobody else can actually do. Because we're all parts of his body that carry something unique. Walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I just encourage us. I believe this is what the Lord is calling us to, and I think this is how we need to think about the last days. Instead of getting all excited about events and does this mean that the end is coming, for some, honestly, for, for the church in the West, I don't, I don't say this with any kind of attitude, but I'm like, if, if, if it is, I'm terrified. I'm terrified for the church. Terrified for the church. I'm reading through the book of Revelation and I see in chapter 21 and 22, he gives three different verses where he lists all of those who are going to be left outside of the holy city. And in every one of those lists, every one of the three, he lists these two things in every list. Liars. If you love lie and you participate in a lie and you're a liar, you're not going in. If you're sexually immoral, you're not going in. You will not go into the holy city. And it terrifies me for the church of Jesus. If that's real, see, these are the things about the book of Revelation that I know. 
That's really clear. If that's really clear, we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, that changes everything about us. Luke chapter 21. Let's have three scriptures. You're not going to like any of them, probably. Luke chapter 21. Jesus speaking about the last days to his disciples. Luke 21. We're going to read verses 34 to 36. Here's what 34 says Be on your guard, be alert. Be awake, same kind of sense. Lots of, you know, different translations translate the same way. Be alert, be awake, be on your guard. That your hearts will not be weighted down. Now, a lot of translations translate that as being dull of heart. There's an insensitivity, there's a spiritual dullness. Don't, he said, this is one thing that you must not do. Coming into the last days, you have to stay spiritually sharp and sensitive to my spirit. Don't be weighted down with dissipation. That's a whole self-centered, flesh-feeding lifestyle, drunkenness and the worries of life, that that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. The phrase weighted down, dulled, insensitive heart, not spiritually sharp. And then dissipation, drunkenness. I, I really don't think, y'all, that he was thinking that his disciples were going to go out and be drunkards. These are guys that gave up their whole life and everything for him. I'm not really thinking that he was thinking they were going to go out and become alcoholics or drug addicts. But the point is, humankind and all of us, we tend to medicate, don't we? We medicate our pain. We medicate our fears. We medicate our disappointments, and we medicate our boredom. Do we not? And Jesus is saying, in the last days of all times, you need to look in the mirror and be honest about what and how you medicate, because if that dulls your heart to spiritual things and sensitivity to me, you need to stop doing that. So we need to be honest about our tendency to medicate, and then... Also, he says, the worries of life. That's the anxiety. Is that the, that's the cares of everyday life. But honestly, can I just put this out there? Y'all, yo, yo, I, I have this thing in me that resonates in me all the time that Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when he's talking to the elders of Ephesus. He says, I am free from the blood of all men. Because I have not held back anything from you that would be profitable for you. And there's scriptures in the word that are terrifying. But we need to hear them, just like we need to hear the ones that are comforting. And when it comes to the end times, Jesus' words are mostly warnings to be ready. Don't get your mind all over the place. Don't be caught up in medicating, and don't be caught up in your obsession with trivial things. Social media has made us obsessed with trivial things that suck the spiritual life out of us. 
Now, you won't hear that from any pulpits, but that's a fact, and I think we all know that's true. We cannot risk it. We cannot afford it in the season of the last days to have our lives sucked away with trivial stuff. I read recently of the special ops in World War II, and the Army Rangers were going in to rescue 500 Allied troops that were captive in the Philippines, which was occupied by the Japanese military. And the war was just about over. They were just about ready to drop the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and they knew it was going to be over. And so they sent the special ops in to rescue the 500 that were still in the prison camps. They were the ones that survived out of the thousands that were killed. And so an army ranger went in there, and he, he's, he's writing, and he's telling. He took one of the officers that was captive and grabbed him, and they're running in the night. Dude, you don't do that. They'll kill you right now. And, this, and, and as they're running out, the guy says, wait, 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 I've got to go back. He goes, no, you can't go back. I've got to go back and get some papers. He goes, I have papers that are hidden there that I need because I want to court-martial this other officer who ate my cat when we were in this camp. He ate your cat. They're going to kill you. No, I want to get him back because he ate my cat. They're starving to death in the prisoner of war camp. Obsession with the trivial, like, it makes no sense. Forget the stupid cat. We're here to rescue you and get you back. But are there things in our lives that we get obsessed with that are really trivial and they're not important? They don't have any eternity in them. And, and honestly, you know, this is not a throwdown. I'm just asking us as a people, I'm with you. I'm not preaching down at you. I'm calling us all higher, including myself. Because if we're talking about the last days, this is not all fun and excitement. And oh, I wonder what that is. And this is going to happen. And then this, and then this. It's not like that. Jesus said, it's going to be so stinking hard that if the Father didn't cut the day short, nobody would survive. That's what he said. So we can't afford, as the people of God, to be playing with trivial things and obsessed with things that have no value whatsoever. We just need to be honest. I just encourage you, have, a, have an honest conversation with Jesus. And say, Lord, is this, is my social media use okay, like with you? This is kind of like spending money, right? So, so you, somebody asks you to do a budget. Let's see how much money you spend out on going out to eat in a month. And you go, oh, it's probably 100 bucks, maybe 110 on a big month. And then you actually do it and you go, it's $365! Because you don't realize how much it is. And so I would just encourage us, okay, I'm not against social media, even though I'm not on it. Um, just saying, I feel like I can't afford the emotional energy of listening to idiots. I mean, <laughs> but idiots that think they're experts and everything. I, I can't, like, I can't do that. So, sorry, y'all. I get a little edgy sometimes. But it's real. So I would just encourage us, 
ask Jesus about this. Let's just get honest before the mirror, saying, Lord, this is the end times. I'm your person that is supposed to be living filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you help me? I'm just going to keep track of this week how much time I spent on social media. Are you okay with that? And if he says yes, you're good. Because it's to him that we're going to stand and give account to, and it's really okay. It's not me. Honestly, I, I, don't, I don't care other than I do care for your soul and the purposes of the Lord in your life. Let, let's be honest. Let's be honest with what sucks away our spiritual life and what we medicate with. That's what Jesus said. And then verse 35, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Verse 36, but keep on the alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Please notice the connection with praying. Spiritual alertness is connected with praying multiple times in Scripture. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. Another translation says, be engrossed in prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So the spiritual connection with Jesus. First Peter 4, 7, love. The end of all things is near. What should we do? Get the latest book on prophecy. No. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And 1 John 2, 28, 2, 27 says, you have received the anointing. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. What the Holy Spirit is constantly teaching us as his people is abide in him. Abide in him. What is abiding? Well, it's the branch of the vine. So the vine has the life. The vine has the sap that you and I need. We need the sap from the vine. We can't get it from a book. We can't get it from another person. We can't get it from a revival meeting. We have to get it from the vine. There's a living connection that has to be there where his life is actually transferred into us. That's abiding. Where his word becomes part of our being. That's abiding. Where his nearness and his desires actually take over and replace our desires where his thoughts actually take over and push out our thoughts and take over. That's abiding. The Holy Spirit teaches us to abide. In verse 28 of that same chapter of 1 John, it says, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in, shaming at his, in shame at his coming. Our secret life with Jesus will be on the final exam. Our secret life with Jesus will be on the final exam. Is, is there an abiding connection there? We have to make sure. And so what if we have to cut out our favorite show? Okay. Let's talk about relative value. Zero, infinite. Why do we struggle with that? 
live with spiritual alertness and sensitivity before the Lord. Lesson number two. How are y'all doing so far? First Peter chapter four, okay? This one gets a little rougher. It is scripture. How many want how many want all of the word of God to impact your life? Okay. All right, well let's go let's go here then. I can tell you that the verses I'm about to read are very un American. They're very un Western comfort seeking. But they're the truth of God in his word. So I want to read 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, and then we're going to talk about this one a little bit. And this is the third point that I want to emphasize as far as asking the right question about the last days. And the right question is, how can I be ready to stand before the Son of Man to where I won't be ashamed, but there'll be a beautiful reunion at that moment? That's the question. um, Verse 12 of chapter 4, 1 Peter. Beloved, please hear that first word because everything that he's about to say in this passage is spoken to those that God dearly loves and embraces in his son. So feel that first. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you. What are the next three words? For your testing... As though some strange thing were happening to you. This, this isn't strange. Fiery ordeals and fiery trials, right? The, how many scriptures do we know? We, we know all of this. This is normal. Such is common to man. No temptation, trial, test has come upon you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will also provide a way of escape that you won't have to worry about it. That you might be able to, to bear it. To walk through the fire because that's part of the process. So don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, he's emphasizing here the persecution that they were dealing with. Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with with exaltation. Keep on rejoicing To the degree that you're suffering, rejoice to that same degree. Lift your level of rejoicing to match the level of suffering. That's what he just said. That's what he just said. He just said that. God, God said that. He just said that. Lift your rejoicing to the level of your suffering. This is what glorifies God. We're going to get to that in just a minute. So that at the revelation... Of his glory, that means when he comes, you may rejoice with exultation. So there's a way that we navigate suffering and trials and troubles that is going to make us prepared to stand before him. And we'll see that in just a minute. Verse 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, clearly, again, the context is mostly about their persecution, but not totally. He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. This is is the win and this is the goal 
of every bit of suffering and hardship and trial that we walk through is for God to be glorified. And what does it mean for God to be glorified? It means that we demonstrate by the way that we act and live that he is infinitely more valuable to us than anything that we could lose in this life, than any pain that we could feel or express. He's infinitely more valuable. That's why we can rejoice up to that level. And that's what glorifying him in the middle of the trial is. If we whine and complain about it and blame God and say, I just don't understand why God allowed me to go through this, then that's not really glorifying. I'm not throwing down, but the way we glorify him is saying, Lord, help me to walk faithfully through this and show that you really are my treasure. That's glorifying God in the midst of our trial. So we can rejoice. Why? Because we know he loves us. We're his beloved. We know that he said that these light momentary afflictions, like Paul said, being in prison, being beaten times without number, being left for dead because he was stoned, being uh, tried to be drowned, shipwrecked. All these things were just light and momentary afflictions. They're working in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God is working in the midst of those things. So if we believe that, we'll have a different attitude. Why me? Why do I always have it so hard? We compare ourselves with other people that tend to not be in a season that's as deep at the moment. But the reality is there are thousands and tens of thousands of believers of your brothers and sisters around the world who are living in hellish conditions. And they're the most joyful people in the world. I remember reading the book Secret Invasion where a brother was going into communist countries. He was in Romania, I believe. And there was a man who had been a physicist in that country. He was a top scientist in the country. But he got on the bad side of the communist dictator. He was a believer. He got everything taken away from him. His wife left him. They took away his house, all of his property. They took away his job. And the only job that he could do was that he was a street sweeper with a broom that was broken in half. And all day long, he had to bend over and sweep on the streets. And these guys that were coming over there from America to smuggle Bibles, the Brother Andrews, people, they set up a meeting with this guy through the underground. And they met him on the street. You're Dr. So-and-so? He said, yes. What are you doing out here on the street? I'm living for Jesus and sweeping the street for him. And they said this. This is what they said in the book now. He was so radiant and glowing with joy and with confidence and with love for Jesus that when he left, they both found the nearest bench to kneel down and cry out and repent for their own hardness of heart. Because he saw the treasure. He lived like he really is the treasure. And so he could rejoice no matter what. Here's the reality for us as believers. Even in the book of Revelation, there's lots of death there, right? Martyrs are talked about constantly in the book of Revelation. I know we like to shout about, well, I know what the last chapter says and we win. And we all shout and, and joyful like that. But here's the question that I have. Do we know what all of the first chapters involved to get to the last chapter. And do we think about that? These are the overcomers in Revelation 12, verse 11. 
This is one of the things that I know about the book of Revelation, is that the theme of it is conquering through sacrifice and suffering. And demonstrating to the principalities and powers that even if I lose everything, Jesus is still infinitely more worthy than everything I lost. And so Revelation 12, 11, the overcomers, they overcame him through the blood of the lamb. There was a full trusting and leaning into the power of his sacrificial death and resurrection. Secondly, the word of their testimony, they unashamedly owned him as their Lord and their king regardless of the circumstances. And thirdly, they did not love their lives even unto the death. You go, well, we probably won't ever get martyred. Yes, but we still have to love him infinitely more than our lives, right? He said that through the gospels. If you love father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children more than me, you're not worthy of me. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 10. You're not worthy of me. He said that. See, the whole book of Revelation is a war scene. There's battles that are happening. There's demonic things like that locust that came out of the abyss. Like it's not a helicopter that came out of the abyss, okay? It's probably demonic something. They came out of the abyss. It looks like a horse. They're stinging people. They're causing torment. That's a demonic attack or plague, whatever, okay? But there's war. And there's lots of casualties. They're called martyrs. And they're crying out under the altar, Lord, how long until you avenge us? Just wait. Just wait. It's coming. Be at peace. It's coming. It, it, it's a war scene. And so in war, if, if that's what it is, that's what the last days are, the book of Revelation, in my humble opinion, is talking about and portraying the age that we're in now, which is the last days. And how it plays out. Sorry, I've got to open another bottle. I'm spitting too much up here today. The sacrificial aspect in war is real. I was reading recently, I just got interested in the, the Navy SEALs and what they call their training. You know what the training the Navy SEALs do? They call it Hell Week. I was reading from a guy who is a Navy SEAL and went through Hell Week. He said, it's like this. It's five straight days, and over that five days, you get four hours of sleep total. You run 200 miles. You carry telephone poles on you. There's like five of them that do it, but they weigh like 250 pounds. They're, they're like double the size of telephone poles. You run those around and you do whatever the commanders tell you to do. You get to eat every six hours, but you're constantly wet. They do it on the Pacific Coast. In the Pacific Ocean, I've lived out there. It's cold. I remember as a little kid going to the beach outside of L.A. And it's so hot out and the sand is burning our feet and we're running to try to get to the ocean. It's so hot. And when we jump in the water, we go, <gasps> it's so cold. It's 58 degrees all year. 
So you jump in the water. So this is where they train. They have to go out in the water all night long. They take boats out. They take boats out into the water where it's dark and all that. And then they call them back and they come back. They carry these boats and they run with them on their head. It, it bangs their head. They do this for five straight days. They wake them up on the first day with gunshots all around them like there's a war going on. And they're all, it's time to get up. This is hell week. They sleep four hours in five days. They run 200 miles. They carry these logs. They get out there. They paddle in the boats. They run these things. Only 25% of the top make it through hell week. What's the purpose of that? It's to prepare them because there's real war out there. And when you get into Iraq, when you get into Palestine, when you get into some of these places, you're not going to be able to call Mama and say, Mama, I feel sad today. You're going to have to get out there and crawl through the dirt and sleep under leaves and in the mud and eat grubs and do whatever you have to do to survive because that's what war is like. And Jesus wants us to be prepared. And so in some sense, this present life that we have has elements of hell week in it for all of us. There, there, there is no theology in the New Testament that promises us a comfortable life. Can I just say that? There is no theology in the New Testament that promises us a comfortable life. There is none. No, no, I'm not saying God's against comfort or he doesn't give us all good things to enjoy. But there's no theology in the New Testament that promises us a comfortable life. He promises us eternal life. He promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us no matter what we're walking through. He promises us that he will take care of us because he has all the resources and he won't let us go hungry without food and clothing. He promises all, all those things, but he doesn't promise us that we'll have a comfortable life. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not, a, he's not to be ashamed, but he's to glorify God in this name. That's what we're talking about. For it's time for judgment. Listen to this now. Listen to this. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Judgment begins first with the household of God. This is a principle throughout Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 9. It's terrifying. God's saying, all right, my people have been... A Apostate, I'm bringing judgment on them. He sends in the angels and he tells the angels, go and put a mark upon the head of everybody in Israel that grieves and mourns over the abominations and the sins that are happening inside of God's chosen people. Go, if they grieve and mourn, if they have that same heart that is jealous for my honor, put a mark on them and don't touch them. But everyone else, Go through the land, starting at the elders in the temple. <laughs> starting at the elders. And slaughter every one of them. Old men, young men, women, babies, children. Kill them. 
It's terrifying. It starts in my house first. Because hey, here's the question. In the second coming of Jesus, he's going to bring judgment upon all of those who are in rebellion against him, all ungodliness, all of those who refuse his lordship. But how is he going to be just if he overlooks in his own people the things that he's bringing judgment for against the world? He's not. He's going to begin to deal with us. So how is he dealing with, with us? Verse 17. Judgment is the beginning. So here's, let me, let me clarify this. Judgment for Christians is never destructive. It's always redemptive. It's purification. It's never condemnation. But it's still real. He purges us. Let me read Malachi 3, verses 1 through 3. You may be familiar. Amazing prophecy of the Messiah when he comes. Malachi 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who is that? Who's he talking about? Who is that? I've come to prepare the way of the Lord and make the crooked way. Sorry. John the Baptist. Yeah. Malachi is prophesying about John the Baptist. The forerunner's coming. I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who's that? That's Jesus. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Messiah is coming to his temple. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Jesus that's a, prophecy, that's a prophecy of the Son of God. He's the refiner. He's going to come suddenly to his temple, and it's not going to be what you think. He may not be ready to give you a back rub and, a, and comb your hair and tell you how sweet you are. It may be something different than that. Because he wants us to be able to stand before him with confidence. In that day. And so he's purifying. He's purifying us. Verse, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Notice this. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reality is, y'all, this is the reality of Scripture. The hard things that we walk through, the suffering that we walk through, and we all walk through some suffering, it's promised. Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have it. It's promised over and over. It's probably promised almost more than anything else, but that's the thing we minimize. 
There's a reason for it. It's not because Jesus is spiteful and he hates us. It's because he knows that we need to be prepared and he wants us in that day. He wants his people to stand before him with a full, confident heart, not in ourselves, but in what he's done in us. That we be purified. That he cleanse out of us everything that is unlike him. Everything that is displeasing to him. That he purifies us for that. This is the message of the last days. My favorite commentary on First Peter is from Wayne Grudem. This is what he says about this passage in First Peter 4. The picture is that God has begun judging within the church and will move outward to judge those outside the church. The refining fire of judgment is leaving no one untouched, but the Christians are being purified and strengthened by it. Sins are being eliminated and trust in God and holiness of life are growing. The fire of God's holiness is so intense that even the righteous feel pain in its discipline. I want to read you another quote. It's from Billy Graham. Billy Graham probably the most respected evangelist in, in the Western world in the last hundred years. It blesses me so much the integrity that he lived with his whole ministry and that's not easy to do when you're on the level that he ministered to. So many people, presidents, all the presidents up until I think Barack Obama had him come to the White House. Here's what he said in his book. I look back, he's 65 years old now when he's writing this book. I look back on many years as an evangelist and I wonder, have I made the Christian faith look too easy? In my eagerness to give away God's great gift, have I been honest about the price he paid in his war with evil? And have I adequately explained the price we must pay in our own war against the evil at work in and around our lives. That's a man in the twilight of his career as an evangelist who led thousands and tens of thousands to come down to the altar. And he's questioning in the twilight years, did I really tell the whole truth? Did I really tell the whole truth? They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They were not afraid to name the name of Jesus or to speak of him. And they loved not their lives, even to the death. This is an overcomer. This is what we're all called to. And, and the proof and the reality of the fact that judgment begins first at the household of God is right there in the book of Revelation. Because at the beginning of the history of the last days in the book of Revelation, the Son of God comes in and he's got eyes blazing with fire and his feet and his legs are like burnished bronze that are glowing and those are both symbols. Every scholar will tell you those are both symbols of symbolic of judgment. He's coming to clean house. Jesus is coming to take his rightful inheritance on the earth 
and everybody that ends up resisting him will end up being destroyed. That is the truth of the gospel and of the end times. But the very first thing he does, he's standing in the midst of the churches and he has the seven stars in his hand and he has the seven churches. And he's walking through. And he starts out his words to every church going, I know your deeds. I know exactly what you are. Not the image that you have on Facebook. I know exactly what you are. I know what your life is. And I'm calling you to be rightly conformed. Where? It's out of line. He praised them where they deserve praise, but he also called out the things that needed to be called out and to go up higher. This is the Son of God. This is the last days. Jesus is calling us as his people. Let my refining fire, let the fire that burns in my eyes see what's there, what's really real, and what's just image and fluff. And deal with it now. This is the hope. We have time to deal with these things now. The Son of God is wanting to perfect us because He wants us to be part of His army that is faithful and true. And He calls us to be those who demonstrate with our lives He's worthy of all. This is the scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. All of heaven sees it very clearly. He's worthy of it all because he was slain and purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. And he calls us to willingly. This is the beauty. I go back to the whole thing about abiding and how essential that is. Now, can I, can I encourage you? Can I encourage you? The veil has been torn. The access to God's presence is wide open. Like that would be the most horrible thing to waste in the world. And I encourage us all to raise our level of abiding with him. Because if we're abiding in him, as 1 John says, when he comes, we won't be ashamed. We'll be able to stand. I, I, I know we all like to put on the image like we're prayer warriors and we're all, I, I get that. I, re, I really do. But let's just lay that down for now, if we can. Here, here's what I tell people often in counseling. It doesn't matter what anybody else knows. What matters is what he knows. That's what's going to be on the final exam. And that's what we have to be concerned with. And if we're in the last days and the Bible says that we are, and if Jesus' coming is soon, which the Bible says that it is, then I think the question is not, what does that symbol mean? And is this the battle of Israel? And this is Hamas and all this stuff. That's really not the question. I'm not saying it's not interesting. But the question for us is, what are we doing? How are we living to be ready for that moment when it happens? Bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray for us as your people. 
that you would come as the refining fire. Lord, you already demonstrated, and you came in the book of Revelation, you said that you are the one who loved us, and you washed us from our sins with your own blood. You, you love us, and you call us higher because you love us, because there's purpose and there's destiny for what you've called us into. Lord, we want to walk in that. Would you help us to be ready? I pray that you would help us, Father, that you would come and shine light on everything in us that needs to be tweaked or changed. You don't come to beat us up, Father. You are a good Father. You're gentle, but you're also firm. Would you do that in us? Lord, as a people in this body, we can't control what goes on everywhere else, but in our own heart and our own soul and in our own mirror, would you come as the refiner? Would you make us ready so that there's no shame and we stand before you with confidence because of the work that you've done in us. Let our lives truly demonstrate every day that you are the highest value, that you are the most precious treasure that we have. I thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your grace. I thank you for the working of your spirit. Lord, I pray again as we've been praying so long on Wednesday mornings, come with the breath of your spirit and pour out your spirit upon us in greater measure. We need your spirit in greater measure. Would you help us to be vessels that can contain what you want to pour out? Help us to be ready. Help us to have open and hungry hearts and to be crying out to you for more of yourself. Help us, Lord. Help us, God, we pray. I thank you, Lord, for these people in this body. I know your heart is for them. You dearly love each one. Thank you for your great love. And your great love, Lord, I thank you also that your love is not a pampering love, but it's a perfecting love. And that you're coming to perfect us and to shape us into the image of your son. We invite you, we open up, and we ask you to do that. In Jesus' mighty name. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.